I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for poems that interest us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash Penn Sound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia in the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Michelle Taransky, teacher, poet, poetry series convener, aesthetic enthusiast, whose 2008 collection, Barn Burned Then, won the Omnidon Poetry Prize that year, was a member of the critical writing faculty here at Penn and has won the Beltron Family Award for innovative teaching at the Kelly Writers House and whose poems in her 2013 book, Sorry Was in the Woods, make me, as a reader, as a recent reader, wait, worry, watch, as she arranges and deranges my understanding of where I am when I'm reading. And by Lainey Brown, a poet who... I was smiling when I said that. It was such a great read, Michelle. Thank you. And by Lainey Brown, a poet who is now a Philadelphia area resident, I'm happy to say, and who teaches here at Penn, I'm also very happy to say, whose work explores notions of silence and the invisible through the recontextualization of poetic forms such as the sonnet in her book Daily Sonnets, and such as Tales in the Scented Fox, a book I read this summer, thank you for giving me a copy, and of Letters in the Desire of Letters, and Psalms in Lost Parkour Psalms, whose 2015 book, Practice, which I also recently read, is a volume of meditations on humane connectivity, one of which begins, Practice the version of yourself you must pardon, the one with fragile lips drifting into late. Yeah. And by Rodrigo Toscano, whose Deck of Deeds was published by Counterpath in 2012, whose Explosion Rock Springfield is due out from Fence in 2016, and three of whose earlier books, The Disparities Platform and Collapsible Poetics Theater, I just reread a few days ago, this past weekend, and they floored me with their dizzying array of cultural geographical reference aligned with dystopian portraits of people caught in the tangle of industry-specific predicaments and form, I think, Rodrigo, a truly whole, entirely whole work or project by a remarkable poet. Rodrigo, welcome back. Hey, to the right here. It really is. Really happy that you're here. It's the first the first time you were here, we were thinking yesterday was in nineteen ninety eight. Is that really that seventeen right. years ago? Yeah. There was another conference that was the And took you were place here yet. other times. That's right, like two thousand and two. Yeah. But I think it's a sole participant. That was the only time I was yeah, here. Yeah, it was great. I, I I we have the recording of that and it's okay. worth going back to. Um tell us quickly about Explosion Rock Springfield. Um, okay. Uh, um Explosion Rock Springfield is based on a on a sort of a real incident that happened in, in Western Massachusetts. And actually in Springfield, it was an explosion that took place. Um, it was a strip Springfield club. Springfield Mass. A, yeah, Springfield Mass. And it was an explosion that took place in, in the middle of the day. So happened on that day, um, the daycare next to it that everybody had vacated. It was like a like a staff day or field day. And um, thankfully that, that was the case. And so the entire building was leveled. The entire block was, was leveled. And... The, you know, I think the headline read uh, something like something to this effect, but um, pretty close to this, actually. The Friday evening gas explosion in Springfield leveled a strip club next to a daycare. And, and when I read that, 
I was just uh, really, really, really intrigued by sort of as an anth- sort of armchair anthropologist, uh, you know, what is uh, a daycare next to a strip club? In fact, no, in fact, yeah, juxtaposition. But in fact, like, what is daycare? In fact, what is care? No, no, wait a minute. As a matter of fact, what is strip? What does it mean to strip? And, and all that. So I, it, so I, I chose that line, and I, and I used it for eighty-seven variations. So there are 87 variations. 87 variations. Not of the line itself. Sometimes I bank off the line itself, mm-hmm. but most of the time I just use it as, as a springboard for inquiries about life, politics, history, etc. So Great. that's coming out in the spring. And we we got we had the pleasure of hearing 37 of those 87 sections that's or something like correct. that. Correct. Yes. And by the time people were listening to this uh, poem talk, that s- group of them will be available on Penn Sound, on your Penn Sound page. Yes. So I'm really excited. Thank you. Michelle Laney, great to see both of you back here, here at the Writer's House. I feel Thank so you. lucky that both of you are nearby and I get to see you a lot. Although, Michelle, a little less recently, so I'm really glad to see you today. Thanks well, for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, always. Well, today we've come together to talk about five short sections of Robert Fitterman's book, Sprawl. The book published by Make Now Press in Los Angeles in 2010 has an epigraph from Whitman's Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, which I had forgotten about when I reread this thing. Has an epigraph from Whitman's Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, and then we get a verbal directory of many parts and kinds of parts of a mall, producing an effect that Tan Lin describes as the new floating topography. The sections we'll hear now from Fitterman and we'll talk about are J.C. Penny page 45 in the book, and I'm giving page numbers for us and for listeners because um, as directory-oriented as the book is, you actually can't easily find the sections um, because you have a mall directory but not a table of contents, which is in itself interesting. J.C. Penny, page 45 in the book. Then we'll hear K. Jewelers, page 40 in the book. China Buffet, page 65. Zabaro, also page 65. And Lacoste page 35. These five sections are almost entirely the same performed and recorded as they appear as text in the printed book. The recording we're using, available on Fitterman's ample pen sound page, was made at a Segway series reading at the Bowery Poetry Club on October 27, 2007, a few years before the Make Now Press book was published. So here now is Rob Fitterman performing from Sprawl. J.C. Penny. I was disappointed, but then I realized that rather than J.C. Penney getting exposure for OK Go, OK Go is helping to advertise J.C. Penney because that place sucks. They need all the help they can get. Don't you know it's because of J.C. Penney that we're in Iraq? Their clothes get made in unlit warehouses by child sex slaves, too. And what's up with the W label, work to weekend, means every day. Come on, it doesn't make any sense. When I saw the J.C. Penny commercial, I knew I just had to Google the band playing in the background, so I ended up on your blog. I think your band rocks. Stay true to your music. Keep your feet on the ground. K. Jewelers. My husband purchased the ESP plan for a pair of two-tone gold hoop earrings when I returned on Saturday on my way to an appointment that couldn't find the ring. I'm telling everyone who will listen to run, don't walk away from K Jewelers and that every kiss from K could go on my ass. China Buffet. 
went here for a quick lunch today, was really surprised that so much grease could even be used. Very heavy and really unpleasant. It's a good thing I didn't throw away my fat guy pants. Best mall food ever. We began our meal with the crab rangoon, which was some of the creamiest ragoon I've ever tasted. However, it could have used a bit more crab. We definitely were in need for some extra sweet and sour sauce, however. I'm a junkie for sweet and sour. I could put that stuff on my cereal in the morning. Sparrow. I looked up Sparrow in several English-Italian translators, but none of them had it, so I still don't know what it means. Update. Someone just informed me that Sparrow is a family name. I should have known that, LOL. Americans have the same pizza cravings that I do, lots of them, and are eating it almost nonstop, sometimes every day in my case. I've eaten a lot of pizza in my life. And I have found that Subaru makes the best pizza far and away. Lacoste. I went to college so I could play tennis. I've got their credit card, and to me a credit card is like free money. I use it to get things, and then I never have to pay for them. Sure, I get a credit card bill like everybody else, but in my mind paying those credit card companies is wholly unrelated to any shopping I may have done previously. It's just a thing I do every month. Is there any relationship between the brand that works out to be the title and the voice, the kind of voice, the level of voice, the presumed social position of the voice that we hear or voices? Rodrigo? I, I think it's hard to say. You know, we um, we are looking right now, uh, the three of the four of us, um, at the text, the final text of of um, Sprawl, and it's you know it's different than what we heard on the on the. I kind of misspoke at the, the re- beginning when the I recording. said that they were exactly the same. And and I think that that goes to show how much sort of elbow grease like uh, Rob puts into his his work, and I'm glad actually we got to hear these different versions. Um, I think uh, that Rob uh, works a- across materials very well, and he's a very keen observer of of different types of speak. And so, really, really, what Rob does much of the time is is work with with translation uh, within within English. Can we make uh, a little list together? Yeah, of the kinds of voices or the pop- putative sources, the sources we can guess. At Laney, what's one source? Well, commentary online, online reviews and... So like Yelp-like reviews, whether Yelp was specifically in play? They're, they're po- I think they're po- like poster boards. Um, like and those the old are, email, electronic bulletin board? Yeah, that's what I mean. And, and those, those tend to switch a lot. And a lot of people sort of re-quote somebody else's um, you know, comment. And you get that feel here as well. But here it's more discreet and, and concrete because I think that this was the, the book, when you read these descriptions, these mall descriptions, these stores, they're meant to sort of go on a plaque. And so there's sort of there's a sort of monumentality about it that I think that Rob is trying to achieve here mm, with the language, a very fluid language of the of the posting. So I boards, the yeah. bulletin boards ironic bulletin boards, yeah. given how yeah. given how and I'm putting this word in quotes, low 
the low in terms of uh, social class the source is, you get you want to make it epigraphic. So yeah. there's this high low thing. Right. Michelle, can we add to the list? So far, we have comment stream review type things. Um, I think in some of them, there's also overheard things in the stores so that Rob has also gone to the stores and listened. Um, and that might be a different kind of speak, a more personal in the Lacoste, uh, a girl talking to her dad, not to like every consumer of the store, but um, dad, no one says preppy anymore. Um, so to answer your original question that people are using the speak or the brand of the store against it or in order to describe it often. So in Lacoste, as opposed to China Buffet, where the, I'm, I'm assuming a man is saying, I'm glad I didn't throw away my fat guy pants. In Lacoste, the first line is, I only went to college so I could play tennis, which is something you might say in a Lacoste store and wouldn't say in China Buffet. Does that help us, Lainey? How, how, are, how is social discourse mapped at all, if, it, if at all? It seems to me like there's an emphasis on all of the juxtapositions and how the voices really often contrast and conflict with each other, but also they there's this funny thing about cause and effect that's going on throughout. Um, I only went to college so I could play tennis. In some contexts, that might sound very normal, and in others, not normal at all. Um, like, for instance, in the... In the K Jewelers one, there's a juxtaposition between somebody, you know, excitement and then run away from the store. So, in other words, what is it brings up this question of what is authority in terms of when we have all these opinions coming together from all these different sources and they're, they're all very strong opinions and they're right up next to each other. And and they're and they're revealing, um, obviously, for the time that they were sort of, you know, um, you know, uttered. And, and also in the time that they were sort of cobbled back together by Rob. Um, I'm thinking of uh, <clears throat> how in our time, you know, uh, the demotic speech of people is very, very uh, available to us and, and will be very available to people, you know, many generations ahead of us. If you think of like the Romans, we know very little about their demotic speech. And, and here there's a sort of reversal. It's almost like the tablets are revealed for us. Um, so that we can look at it as already ancient. Because remember, Sprawl starts off with this whole thing about the Cahokia um, civilization, which was lost, which nobody knows anything about. And he opens up the whole book with this whole thing, right? And about, why does he do that? Um, to, to set um, this very contemporary speech into an already dead, dying empire. So we have, um, in one case, actual archaeology that is layers of civilizations. But now we have an archaeology of demotic speech as well Do, does the does the work michelle does the work date i mean rodrigo's point he said time and then as he was speaking i realized what he meant by time was era epoch um, um now there's a what's the word a superfluity we have a superfluous amount of this kind of demotic speech available through the net i think in 2007 and 6 when he was working on this there might have been a. It may, there were some laugh lines about LOL. I don't think LOL would get a laugh line in performance now. I'm not sure about that. Anyway, any thoughts on any of that? Well, I think in addition to the speech and what was recorded, it's also the difference in the architecture now that the shopping mall is no longer 
the place that we would go. We have these more open-air shopping centers, and people don't want to be enclosed inside where a China buffet might be next to a Lacoste. Um, mm. So I think the architecture also, which Rob is very invested in, the archaeology of the space, I think, I don't know that Rob would go to a mall and do this So now. it's already historical? I grew up near the first shopping mall in America, but I would say it's already historical, yes. Eleni, do you agree? I mean, it's a fu- it's totally great. It's a great work, whether it's histor- whether it's valid today specifically in the socio-economy of retail or I think, not. I mean, I think this question about architecture is really interesting and how does architecture reflect culture and how does it reflect consumer culture? You know, if consumer culture is leisure, then how does the architecture reflect that? And just given that the whole book is organized by the map of the mall, it does seem, yeah. Like it's, a, it's quite an alternative organization. Remember at the beginning I said, it's hard to find these texts because we get a map of the mall and not a map of the book. Right. Is that, is well, that interesting or that's profound? That's deliberate because no. in the mall, no. um, retailers want you to be lost so that you walk by more shops, even within one shop, things are moved. It's and that's very a textual deliberate. strategy. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh-huh. I think this is also sort of Dantonesque in a way too, right? You have the different levels of the mall. You know, he, uh-huh. When you look at the, the different <laughs> divisions, like, you know, level two or, or you know, the, you know, I mean, it's kind of, oh no, you know, this is hellacious. But you know, malls where are, are we? Where malls are, we? are actually organized by, like that. Like, so if you are a right. JCPenney shopper, there are the stores for JCPenney people. And then the Bloomingdale stores are at the different anchor. Right. So, um, yeah, and I, I think the, the tone of it is that, though, like, um, right, uh, street level, right, level two, level three, you know, the atrium. Holy shit, what, you know, what, what happens there? Um, the food court. <laughs> and then and finally finishing up with the Cineplex. I have two questions, and I'll ask both of them, and I'd love to hear all your responses. First, is there any mistaking, because of the... Um, the uh, pro- the procedures used. Is there any mistaking the political point of view here? And the second and a somewhat related question is, is there how much risk is there that we will read this and mock or laugh at the the demotic voices that love the creamy uh, what is, what is it which uh, creamiest Rangoon? Rangoon. Um, you know, I couldn't listen to that China buffet peace without being disgusted by just the thought of something so greasy. What risks do we have that we will read down as a, as a matter of class or um, daily choice? Either of those questions, is there any mistake in the politics and what risk is there that we will laugh at these American voices? Michelle, take a stab at this. Um, I think the the audience reception would be different at a reading versus reading at home. Um, I think if you're at a reading and maybe hear other people laughing, then you might feel either annoyed at them for listening down or you would participate in listening down. But I think if you're home alone, maybe you would remember you did like... I mean, I, I think every teenager has gone to China Buffet and perhaps enjoyed it. Or maybe that's just because I'm from New Jersey. But I think different... Oh, so that mall is Patterson? Uh, no, uh, Cherry Hill Mall. Oh, Cherry Hill is the first, right? First yeah. mall in America. Right. Oh, it is, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I think different people have different experiences with malls. Like for some, I mean, if I go to the King of Prussia Mall now, people are using the playgrounds there as 
a place for their children. So I are I'm you saying really... that tastes has, have improved among mall users? What are you saying? I don't. I think it's like I think it's a really complicated question. Um, what the text does with the class reading up or down of the reader, um, I'm not sure because I've I feel like I could see it from many perspectives. I think that that that, that I, I agree with you in some in some sense that. That's the the part of it is that we all enter into these commonalities, these sort of embarrassing sites that we've we've been in, and have had sort of visceral reactions at times that that might seem, you know, not even not appropriate to one's you know highfalutin ethics or or you know stated politics or whatever. But we're all sort of half, having these sort of petty moments, and and Rob wants to sort of in a sort of an intelligent way sort of embarrass that um, high low gradient of, of judgment. Lainey, your thoughts? I feel like the text is really open, and it depends on the context. But one thing that I really admire about it is that it acts like a mirror. I mean, it's we are given the text, and we can see it as we want to see it, as a reflection of consumer culture, of a myriad of perspectives on that all put together. But I feel like there's something universal regardless. I mean, I had my first job in a mall when I was 15. What store? uh, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. So it's familiar. You know, it's a familiar, wherever you come from, it's a familiar American landscape. And there's something about that could be more crab in the Crab Rangoon. Like, you know, it's funny, but it, it also... It points to this contentless content, which is really what this is about. In, intriguing is the the uh, the quote that he uses to kick off the book by by Walt Whitman from Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. Right, so already we have a crossing. This is interesting. This sets that up as a sort of an epic for me of sorts. And the quote kind of goes like this uh, by Walt Whitman: In the day among crowds of people, sometimes they came upon me. I, too, had received identity by my body, that I was, I knew, was of my body, and what I should be, I knew, I should be of my body. And how does it frame our, possibly, our attitude toward the I, toward the first-person speech of these people? Well, it's interesting in a sort of sci-fi sense. You know, there's the bodies of people sort of traversing this mall, and then there's the body, the organism of the mall. You know, which is it? Is it sort of one or the other, or are we of this organ? But it, I, I don't know, to be honest, but it's intriguing that, that he would put that with, you know, with the word a body appears, what, three times, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. think about the I, Michelle, in relation to the body. When I read the epigraph... And then read the last line in the text, at least, of China Buffet. I hear Walt, and it makes me abashed that I ever would laugh or even instinctively look down on someone who would say this about China Buffet and realize that there's some generosity here in the process, Rob Fitterman's process. And the line that sounds like Walt from Song of Myself is, I am a junkie for sweet and sour. I could put that stuff on my cereal in the morning, exclamation point. And if that's Walt, then we need to get to the mall and be with our people. Am I being a little too ecstatic? I think there's something there. I think, yeah. There's something democratic in the eye. Um, and it's all of these eyes collage together, all of the bodies together. You maybe can't, dis- you know, you can't distinguish one from the other. And should you, should you be sorting them into categories 
is class consciousness or the extent of unconsciousness an issue here? And I'm thinking particularly of the China Buffet person who says, I wish there were more crab in the crab rangoon, which is, which is a legitimate complaint at China Buffet. It's a, it's, it's a review of the meal. On the other hand, one of the reasons it's potentially comic is that there's a larger structural problem there. So can any of us talk about, is, is class consciousness, presumably it's better if there were more, is that an issue in this work at all? I think these are quantitatively spare poems if you think about the, the amount that Fitterman had to sort through. So it's possible um, that he's suggesting, even with all of the more, there is a less that we can get to if we choose. I think... I think from my perspective, I might differ a little bit. I think he's, I think Rob really sticks it out. He, I mean, he in, in, in particular volumes, this is like a whole length thing. And I think that if, I think class consciousness is something that, that exists, but not in this, not in this book in that particular way. You might say, you might say, you know, all sorts of stuff exist outside of this, this um, purgatorio of, of sprawl, all sorts of things might exist outside of this thing. And so so when you're inside this, you know, what is it? And I think he begins the book quite, kind of like very along those lines. The very first section, uh, the hard section, is called Southgate Parking Garage. That's the part. And he begins with a sort of set of ontological uh, sort of inquiries. And they're kind of, they're very sparse and they kind of read like this, if I can read a few. Mm, please. And aren't they everywhere now? Isn't that something different? Don't you find them really tight? Did they make you feel confident? And, you know, and this is not, I don't think this is incidental on Rob's part. I think these prompts are meant to really clear you out of, of nouns, particular nouns. Like, you know, there's no um, references here to stores, cities, nothing like that. They're purely ontological questions, maybe some relational questions. You're uh, not anyway. You think that's right. Yeah, I guess I read the text in a sense that we're all implicated in this consumer culture, whether it's China Buffet or it doesn't matter where it is. We're all consumers. And I feel like the one aspect of the Whitman quote is about that. That's part of what it means to have a body. That's part of what it means to exist and to live is that you have to be a consumer. But the question that it raises for me is who do these texts belong to, you know, and how what are the different ways in which they can be used this is this is one manifestation of a collecting and making something and a commentary out of these texts um i have a little quote from his notes on conceptualism that i think is rel- relational here one might argue that confiscation suggests capturing or repenning reiteration or recognition seems more apt as the work is reinvented via its adoption. Hmm. There are two kinds of styles that Rodrigo pointed out, or implied, because the one that he quoted now is the, is the uh, compositional re-penning of statements that were made on these bulletin boards that are essentially existential statements, which, if removed, 
in an extreme act of condensation, almost like a station of the metro kind of condensation, then what you're left with is a profound profundity that the people who are visiting the malls are, cap malls are capable of. Um, the other kind of text you have here in this book is the full density of this social speech that includes these existential, existential statements. And I'm not saying I prefer one to the other. I'm very moved by these. But I'm particularly moved as a reader when I'm reading through the density of the chit-chat in Lacoste and then the speaker, whoever it is, says something profound, like anyone that finds their style to be boring and the same old thing is perhaps boring themselves, which is a really profound, actually meta-poetic line. Mm -hmm. And I'm really, the pleasure for me is mm -hmm. arriving at that profundity, epigraphic profundity, mm -hmm. in the middle of all this stuff because it mm -hmm. means that I have to do the work of of finding in the archaeology of this moment mm -hmm. the profundities that are there. Mm -hmm. I guess I am stating a preference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We could talk about this for a long, long time, so I'd like for us just to somewhat arbitrarily wrap up with a, a final thought or final word from each of you, something that you didn't get the chance to say that you wanted to uh, for the record. Michelle, do you have a final thought? Mm, I think my final thought is... I'd like to read this again and think about it again um, after looking back at Whitman's Democratic Vistas and, and thinking more about this poem um, in relation to to Whitman. I think that would be an interesting other. And Fitterman is asking us to do that. Yeah, and I want to do that. Terrific. Lainey, final thought? I would want to just throw out for anybody who has a question about the value of appropriation in this kind of writing that... Um, one thing that I find really useful is just remembering that every act of writing is a form of translation or collaboration. And so what Rob does that I really admire is that there's there's just a direct, invaluable honesty here in what's being gathered and and how it's presented. I think uh, over the many, many years that that, that Rob has been, around, uh, you know, before he, you know, he sort of, um, you know, did this conceptual thing. Before, for many years, since the early 90s, we see this this ability that he has to um, be, be, be very discreet about his project. One book has a completely different concern than the next one and looks like it. It looks like it has a different concern. Um, and it shifts. And I think this is having, uh, over time, this has had a great uh, influence on a lot of writers. Uh, including myself. Um, I don't think that I could have written Explosion Rock Springfield without thinking so discreetly about sectioning in that way. We have completely different ways of going about it, and we have a lot of good laughs talking about that when we're in person. And and um, But I think it's indisputable, um, the influence overall that he's gonna, he's having now and, and that he will have. In there the may future. even be a juxtaposition yeah. in your new work that owes some kind of debt to the conception of sprawl in those two two retail places that are um, entailed in the explosion in Springfield. Yeah. Because you make much of that in your new work. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that I, I'm more sort of, um, you know, I have a more, like a, more jittery nerves than Rob does about a lot of things. And, um, and he has a sort of a, a cooler approach. To, to society at large, but I think that the, yeah no there's there's definitely gender, there's definitely here what you know um, things to make you uncomfortable I, and 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 also yeah. at the level of the line Rodrigo because your okay. your line is jittery 
It isn't? Okay. It is. Even now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, <laughs> my final thought is uh, just to point out my favorite moment, not just in the excerpts that we chose for this poem talk, but in the whole book. And it's in the J.C. Penney section in the text. Um, that we're clearly watching a reviewer, a Yelp-like reviewer who um, thinks about the J.C. Penney commercial and then thinks about the music that's playing in the background of the J.C. Penney commercial and clearly wound up exploring the web to learn more about the music and found your blog, someone, the blog of the band. And then, generously, without any irony, and I don't think Fitterman is using any irony at all, there's no distance here, I think your band rocks. Just stay true to the music. Keep your feet on the ground. You think it, it looks good on you, but you're not me. That's something else, refer, referring back to some item at J.C. Penney. But this, this generosity that could be read ironically, and we could mock someone who is so interested in the background music to a J.C. Penney commercial that they're following the band, but there is someone who makes that music, and that person is connecting. And it seems to me just a wonderful Whitmanian moment there. Hmm. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all three of you, if you're quick, to spread wide your narrow hands, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. And given that this is possibly purgatorial, possibly Dante-esque, it'd be nice to end with a little gathering of paradise. So uh, just to go with that conceit. Um, Lainey, do you have something you want to recommend? I do. I have really been enjoying Anne Boyer's new book, Garments Against Women. So I strongly recommend that. And what's the year of that book? Is it 2015? Yes. Fantastic. Thank you. Michelle. I've been really enjoying, again, um, Kellen Lowe's book, These Are the Glorious Stories from Factory Hollow Press. Fantastic. Well, um, I now live in New Orleans, and there's this incredibly um, uh, uh, sort of infernally uh, divey reading series. At oh, you got it back it, to Inferno. In, yes, you? in the Bywater on Wednesday nights at BJ's at 8 p.m., it runs from the fall, and it also runs in the spring. So if anybody is in New Orleans, they can just drop by and see sort of all this bumpy, potholed kind of voices all going at it at once. And I'll be there, too. Tremendous. Yeah, when you're yeah. not traveling on a Wednesday night, you'll be there. So this is great. I will. So make... see, see that's, that's my office, people. So if you want to see me there. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's all the everyday pizza cravings we have time for on Poem Talk Today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Michelle Taransky, Lainey Brown, and Rodrigo Toscano, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardiner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same one and only Zach Cardiner. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of Poem Talk.